All right, this morning, as we continue our study on the progress of redemption in the Bible, we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms. Uh, in his book, Reformed Preaching, uh, this is a book that uh, Patrick and Woody and I and John have been going through, Joel Beakey says that the Psalter gives us an authentic theology of the Christian experience. He says that some people see the Christian life as only joy and victory, but we all know that there is also pain, sorrow, frustration, and loneliness. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul for their depiction of every human emotion toward God. They are songs for our earthly pilgrimage. In the scriptures, we are called to believe God is with us. Yet as Woody said in his prayer this morning, we sometimes feel like he's deserted us. We feel as though he has forgotten to fulfill his merciful covenant promises to us. The argument is that we ought to therefore look intently to the Psalms to give us a better understanding of what we encounter as we walk this path of life with God. The Psalms, which were written by several different men, cover a span of time that covers nearly all of the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Martin Luther called the Psalms a little Bible and a summary of the Old Testament. We find several categories of Psalms. We have hymns, we have laments, we have thanksgiving Psalms, we have Psalms of confidence, we have kingship Psalms, wisdom Psalms, and so on. As we have been following, again, this progress redemption through the Bible, we should appropriately ask, where does the book of Psalms fit into this larger story? And I think it's first most uh, important and accurate to say that the Psalms are written in their immediate historical context to give the people of God an example of the way that they should live from the time that they lost their King David all the way to the coming of the Messiah. But it's also for all his chosen people who are still looking for him to return again. We can continue to look to the book of Psalms to remember the Lord in order to encourage us and give us hope. The Psalms reveal to us the many ways in which God has worked in the past and he continues to work today. They should be to us as an anchor. We should hold fast to them and bury them deep in our soul so that we might not drift away from the Lord. Not only are they an anchor, but also a rudder to steer us and to guide us through this life as we walk the path God has laid out for us. We have a God-given task and destination. We don't pick it. We don't change it. We go. And the psalm should function as a part of our navigation on that journey. When we read many of the books in both the Old and New Testaments, we tend to think, how did God's people fail over and over again so many times when God was right there with them? The Israelites had God tabernacling there with them. The disciples had Christ right there. Yet they failed many time and time again. We tend to think they were dumb, weak, immature failures. Let me let you in on a little secret. So am I, and so are you. 
This is why the scriptures are such a benefit to us as believers. They provide a guide for us to live, but they also provide a guide for us for self-examination. What rubric do you most often use to examine your life, your attitudes, your actions, and your emotions? Most of us compare ourselves to others. At least I'm better than them, we might say. I'm really doing a better job at this or that than this guy or that girl. Well, at least I don't commit this sin or that sin. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke 18, 10 through 12, it says, two men went up to a temple to pray, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The Pharisee compared his life and his actions to the man that stood before him instead of God, his commands, and his statutes. So what rubric should we use? In this life as believers, we are image bearers of Christ. When people see us, they should, be in, they should see an ever-changing, an ever-growing image of, and reflection of Christ. Think of an artist painting a picture. Not, a, not painting an original work, but a copy. Imagine he has labored many long hours working to make his painting look as close to the original as possible. When he finishes, he takes this copy into a showroom and he shows it to his friends and his family. They praise him for what a great job he's done. They tell him how perfect it is how great he did at meticulously copying every little detail. They don't see any flaws. They don't see any need for him to change anything. But when the copy is placed next to the original, the people begin to have a different opinion. When compared to the original, it really doesn't seem so great at all. The original exposes many flaws in the copy. The colors are off. The setting may be off. The placement is all wrong. The shading is not correct. When we examine our lives, our character, our motives, our thoughts and actions, in comparison to anything else but the scriptures, we tend to think pretty highly of ourselves. But if we will honestly examine these things against the scriptures, we should very quickly realize how badly we daily fail in living up to the standards God has given to us. The question we must answer today is, does this reality discourage us to the point that we are okay with being passive, lazy, forgetful, or even silent? about the Lord, his word, and all his works in our marriages, in our families, in our communities? Or are we instead going to be determined to allow the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, repentance, and guidance into every area of our life, 
to stop us from committing these many and common generational sins that occur in our families and all of our spheres of influence. I want you to keep that question in mind this morning as we begin to look at our text. Uh, First, I wanted to briefly discuss um, our author Asaph so that we can have a better understanding of what he's written to us this morning. Uh, When when Joe read our scripture this morning, uh, he appropriately read the first part. It says, a mascal of Asaph. And a mascal simply means that it's a psalm that gives us instruction to follow. And the first place we see Asaph appear um, is in 1 Chronicles, uh, in the latter half, chapter 16, uh, is where we find him. Chapter 16 introduces us to Asaph's ministry. Uh, If you'll remember, in the chapters leading up to 16, we see that David had just defeated the Philistines and brought back the Ark of the Lord from captivity. David had placed it in a tent and they had gave offerings to the Lord there and sacrificed there. After these initial sacrifices and offerings, the text says that David appointed Asaph as the leader of many whom he charged with ministering before the ark of the Lord. So what did these ministers do? Well, the text tells us that they um, invoked the Lord, they thanked the Lord, and they praised the Lord with singing and music daily. One might ask, why did they write and sing songs before the ark of the Lord? And what kind of songs did they sing? In that text, David had instructed Asaph and his men to record all of Israel's history and journey with God and to sing it daily, not for the benefit of just themselves, but for the benefit of all the others there. David wanted the people to remember and rest in God's sovereignty and to have joy in him because of who he was and all he had done. These men sang these songs unto the Lord every day at the entrance of the temple. Every day. Before God's people could properly worship in the temple, they had to prepare their hearts and minds. They needed to be properly oriented toward God. These men that Asaph led by their ministry to the Lord at the entrance of the temple were seeking to do that. In 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 12, we get the beginning of the first song that David had instructed them to read at the temple. And it says this, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all of his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. This is the man who wrote this psalm we'll be looking at today. A man along with many others who for many years of his life devoted himself to singing praises to the Lord in front of the temple. A man who continued to, to, and sought to remind all of those people who the Lord was, what he had done, so that they might keep his commandments, set their hope in God, 
and tell these glorious truths to the next generation so that they too would tell the generations yet to be born. If you would look over uh, in, in a few more chapters in 1 Chronicles 25, you would see that Asaph, along with 287 other men, discipled and trained not only their sons, but many other musicians, men to be musicians, to the king and to the Lord. They taught the next generation to memorize songs and scripture. They taught them to sing music and play musical instruments and worship of God. His love, his mighty work, his sovereignty, and so many other things we find in the Psalms. Why did these men memorize and meditate on scripture to such a degree? Is it really necessary? Have you ever asked yourself, what does God want me to do in this situation? What should I say? How should I react here? What's the answer to this problem I have right now? The answer to those questions are found here in God's word, not in the wrinkles of the palm of your hand. Asaph and his men understood that. The Bible contains, by its own account, everything that we need for life and godliness. And it has provided us many examples to follow, including our text this morning. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10, 11 through 13, it says this. Now these things happened to them as an example. But when they were written down, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The scriptures, including all of the examples, instructions, and commands found in them, are our way of escape from these many trials. Don't you want to know the way to escape when you're confronted with temptation? Don't you want to know the way to endure a difficult trial? This truth in 1 Corinthians is very comforting to me that whatever I go through, there is nothing new to man and that I can endure it. And it's right here within my reach. I just must simply read and apply this to my life. This morning, Asaph has provided for us instruction and the answer to the question, should we and do we hide the scriptures from the next generation? Should we and do we hide the scriptures from the next generation? Should we? No. Do we? Often I'm afraid the answer is yes. 
As we begin to look at the context of Psalm 78 this morning, I ask you this question. Do you think you're guilty of hiding the scriptures from the next generation? This long-lasting generational sin of failing to teach the next generation to love and worship God in all his commanded ways has always been a problem, dating back to our first parents. Not only did Adam fail to pass on God's instructions to Eve properly, but they both failed to teach their children even the basics of worship and sacrifice. And because of that, we have in the scriptures the very first recorded murder. This cycle of generational sin has continued since. Throughout the scripture, we find generations that are righteous and faithful to God. And then at some point, they forget God, his commands, and they fail to teach the next generation about God. Soon they fall into sin and worship idols, and they forsake the ways of the God, of the Lord. Their sin prompts the anger and judgment of God. Then, after a time, a remnant of God's people cry out to the Lord. There is repentance among that remnant, and a new generation rises up that is righteous and faithful to God once again. And the cycle repeats over and over and over again. Whether we realize it or not, we are today, right now, leading and teaching the next generation. Either we're leading them in and toward faithfulness, or we're leading them into sin. And we don't want to be guilty of the latter. Again, you don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 18, 1 through 6, it says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So these are men. These are disciples that must be like children. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones, one of these disciples of Christ, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. As Patrick said very clearly a couple weeks ago in his sermon, you are either a friend and a child of God or you're his enemy. You're either working against him or for him. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. So I ask this morning, which are you? And are you living in accordance to that identity? So how do we ensure we are not failing God in the next generation? I'm glad you asked. Psalm 78 offers us at least three exhortations to keep us from committing these generational sins. And just to be clear, 
None of these things happen in our lives automatically or accidentally. The first is this, that you must command your attention to studying and remembering the scriptures. The second is that you must intentionally apply and live out the scriptures faithfully in your family and in all of the spheres of influence the Lord has placed you in. And the third exhortation is that we must diligently teach the next generation the scriptures at every opportunity. Teach them to apply the scriptures to every area of their lives so that they too can reach or teach the unborn generation to come. So let's look at this first exhortation here this morning. You must command your attention to studying and remembering the scriptures. Look at me in chapter 78 of Psalms, verses 1 through 3. Amaskal of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Where do you turn your attention each day? Rachel and I very recently discovered uh, something on our phones called a digital well-being monitor. It's simply an app on our phones that graphs and categorizes all of the time that we spend on our phone and in what category we spend that time. What if your life had one of these? Where do you spend your time? What takes the highest priorities and the most time in your daily life? Where does your time in prayer and studying the scriptures fall in that list? It's clear that people today feel little urgency to read, study, or remember anything. Why? It's because we have the world at our fingertips. All the answers, all the methods, all the tips and tricks, all the formulas, just about anything that you need to know, and you can have the answer in seconds. Now imagine the internet didn't exist. My point is simply that having the scriptures at your fingertips and not embedded into your heart and into your brain and into your spirit will have much less of an effect on the way you live your life, moment by moment and decision by decision. If you remember in Matthew 4, Christ's response to the, devil, to the devil's temptation was this. Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He literally means that God's word is feeding him and sustaining his very spirit. Do we think and live that way? Do we wake up in the morning and think, if I don't read and study and meditate on God's word today, I'm going to starve. My spirit will starve. 
a very large portion of our lives we spend taking care of and sustaining these fading bodies in this fading world. We make sure to feed ourselves food and water, to give ourselves shelter, and to provide financially so that we can buy and supply everything that we need. We do need to take care of ourselves. This is not bad. But I simply want you to examine your life and I want you to see that you must give more effort than this to the nurture of your spiritual life. You must feed it, you must provide for it so that it will grow. This mortal body is fading, but our spirit will exist for eternity. Think of an engine. It has only a few things that it needs to be maintained for it to function properly. Fuel, clean air, and oil. If you'll take care of these very basic needs, it will function very, very well. It will provide rotation and power as it's designed to. Taking care of our bodies is only good insofar as it is to power our spiritual growth in God's mandate for us to make disciples. God's intention is not for us to spend time on the the fuel, the air, and the oil, on these basic needs in our lives. You don't think about these things until your car alerts you when they're needed. You just fill up your car and you go to your destination. All along the way, you aren't focused on the fuel. Don't lose focus. We are living a spiritual life in a time of spiritual battle, looking forward to a spiritual victory. I would encourage you to fuel up and engage in the battle. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work prayer and meditation on the scriptures are our spiritual fuel and failing to complete to be complete and equipped for every good work is a sin We have been commanded to be a people who look back to remember and then to act. Look at verse 2 in in Psalm 78. It says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Asaph's not telling us that these things are hard to understand. But what he is telling us is that these things command our very intentional and careful attention. The scriptures command our very intentional and careful attention. These things that he writes about to us and these things contained in the scriptures are real, accurate, and unquestionable commands, actions, and events in history. In verse 3 he says, Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. As God's people here and now, we have absolutely no excuse We have either been charged by our physical fathers, by our spiritual fathers, and or our heavenly father 
to read, uphold, and pass down the scriptures to the next generation. We must do this thoroughly, accurately, and intentionally. It's not going to happen accidentally. In verse 4, kind of the crux of this message, it says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation. How does someone hide God's word from their children? To answer that, I would ask, how often are you normally vocal regarding God's word, especially in your home? Do you only show little bits to your children here and there? Do you only open it from time to time? Or only maybe when there's a problem or an emergency, instead of it being a normative part of your life. Scripture is not supposed to be applied a pinch here and a pinch there, like seasoning. It should be like a marinade. It should saturate all of the parts of our life. Scripture is not supposed to be applied a pinch here and a pinch there. It should be like a marinade, saturating all of the parts of your life. So we fail to share God's word audibly, but I think we also fail to pass God's word on visually. Do your children and those around you actively see you living according to God's word? Not only should they hear us teaching them, but they should see us studying the scriptures and living them out. They should see and hear us praying, reading the Bible, reading books about the Bible, and we should be engaging in conversation about the Bible in our homes every day. When our actions as parents and leaders don't line up, they should see us repent. When when we react poorly in a situation, they should see us repent. Our character should be modeled after scripture, and we should often discuss why we act, talk, and walk the way we do. We all know that no one trusts or follows someone who is all talk and no walk. Nor should we expect those around us to live out the Christian life with only a walk to emulate and no talk, no discipleship. Our utmost goal as disciples and as parents should be to completely and accurately transmit all the promises of the Lord and all that he has done to our children and to the next generation. So that's our first exhortation in this passage that we must command our attention to studying and remembering the scriptures. Our second exhortation is that you must intentionally apply and live out the scriptures faithfully in your family and in all of the spheres of influence the Lord has placed you in. If you were to read Psalm 78 in its entirety, you would see many examples of how God's people failed to do this. Most of Psalm 78 gives us a history of and the answer to this question. What happens when God's people forget him? They forget his word, his promises, and his works, and then they fail to pass them on to the next generation. 
For example, look with me in verse 9. We see that the Ephraimites turned back on the day of battle and lost the ark of the Lord to the Philistines. Today, we are still fighting many spiritual battles in our society. Will you turn your back on God and his commands as these men did? Will you ignore abortion? The worship of self? Will you ignore homosexual lifestyles and gay marriage? Will you shut your eyes to the spiritual leaders and churches across this nation who put government before God? Or will you decide to live with the mentality that the church is and should be militant and triumphant in our culture? You are either militant or you're living a defeated life, riding out the war in a bunker. If that's your choice, the enemy thanks you. If you look down at verse 17, we see that though God cared for and sustained Israel in the desert outside of Egypt, they still sinned and rebelled against him. The vast majority of people on this earth have much less than you or I here today. I don't know if you're aware of this, but if you have food in your fridge, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of the people in the world. If in addition to these things, you have money in your bank, money in your wallet, and spare change, you are in the top 8% of the world. How much more than these basic things has God blessed us with? Don't be quick to forget how many gracious and merciful blessings the Lord chooses to bestow on us every day. In verse 18, we see that though he fed them bread from heaven, they were ungrateful, they tested God, and they demanded meat from him. Again, don't get caught coveting. Bigger, better, more. We are extremely blessed, and we should be content in what God has provided. In verse 19, it says that they did not believe in God, nor trust in his saving power. If you'll jump all the way down to verse 36, it says that they flattered him with their mouths and lied to him with their tongues. How many times have you tried to explain away your sin to God? Or justify how your actions weren't really ill-intentioned or wrong? Turn over with me real quickly to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit 
of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Grandparents, parents, siblings. Have you ever caught something, somebody doing something that was obviously sinful? You witnessed the whole thing. Yet when you confronted them about it, they tried to talk their way out of it. They tried to explain it away in such a way that made it look like no big deal. That's how we look to God when we do the same thing. Flip back over with me to in, in Psalm 78. Look down at verse 42. <clears throat> it says that they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them. Do you make an effort to remember God's power? His mighty deeds? Do you know the attributes of God? Or where to find examples of them in Scripture? Do you intentionally dwell on the graciousness and mercy of your redemption in Christ? The lengths at which Christ went to redeem you? How much he loves you? In verse 58 it says that they built high places and worshipped idols. When you go home today, I encourage you to take some time and make a list of all the things that you actually do on a daily basis and the way you currently prioritize them in your life. Be honest. Then examine your list. Are there things that take precedence over daily personal time in the scriptures and family worship? Be honest. What high places have you erected in your households that receive more reverence than the king of the universe and his holy word? Be honest. Examine your life. Look back at the text again. In verses 23 through 29, Asaph tells us that the people had been given manna from heaven. But if you'll read through there, you see that they complained to the Lord about it, and they asked for meat instead. So it says that he sent them quail in greater number than the sand of the sea. And I'll pick up after that in verse 30. Follow along with me. I'm going to read verse 30 through 39. It says, But before they had satisfied their craving, this meat they had in their mouths that the Lord had sent them, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them, and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly, 
They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered Him with their mouths, and they lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him, and they were not faithful to His covenant. Yet He, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained His anger often and did not stir up all His wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Is this what it's going to take for us to live righteously and seek God earnestly? Look back at verse 33 and 34 again. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. Must we kindle God's righteous anger toward us to the extent that we will turn and keep his commandments? Must we come under God's fierce judgment before we will submit to him, before we will remember him, before we will worship him, and before we will pass this one true faith on to the next generation? If you hear nothing else, I urge you today, do not be like those before us, a stubborn and rebellious generation who forgot the works of God and failed to pass them on to the next generation. How will they hear unless someone tells them? Today is the day, the day of salvation for many. And today is also a day of repentance, lest the judgment of God fall upon us for failing in the same way these here failed in Psalm 78. So our first exhortation was that you must command your attention to studying and remembering the scriptures. Our second is that you must intentionally apply and live out the scriptures faithfully in your families and faithfully in all of your spheres of influence. And the third is that we must diligently teach the next generation the scriptures and then at every opportunity teach them to also apply the scriptures to their lives so that they can teach the generations that are yet unborn. Look back over at verses 4 through 8 of chapter 78. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, that the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commands, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Over the past year, we have spent much time from right here teaching about the importance of Deuteronomy 6 and the family. Deuteronomy 6 is an example of the flow of the normative Christian home. And in reality, it's almost a mere reflection of our text here this morning. 
The statutes and commands of Moses were, were, of God were taught to Moses in Deuteronomy 6. And he was commanded to teach the people so that when they entered the promised land and possessed it, they would not forget God. They would not forsake the Lord. And that they would also continue to teach their sons. And that their sons would continue to teach their sons. And so on and so on. From generation to generation. The Lord's purpose in this was that they would only worship the one true God. In regards to this, I would just like to reiterate to you again that you will not be able to effectively teach the words and commands of the Lord to your children and those around you if you don't first saturate your hearts with the scriptures daily. If the scriptures don't infiltrate and influence every part of your life, you will not be prepared to teach them. You will not be prepared to talk about them as you sit in your houses or as you go out and engage the culture around you. If there's one thing that I've learned as a father, it's that children ask a lot of questions and that they expect answers. This is God's design. This is good. But if we don't have the answers or we choose not to answer, rest assured they will find the answer and it may not be a good one. So whether in our homes or in our jobs or in the grocery store, the Lord presents us with dozens of opportunities each day to pass on the word of the Lord, to pass on the truths of Scripture. But most of us usually have an excuse for not doing it. I'm too busy. Not right now. I've got somewhere else to be or something else to do. That'll take too long. Do I really want to get into this conversation right now? But I have a God-given promise to you this morning. Continually rejecting opportunities, laziness, and forgetfulness, and silence about God's word will most assuredly result in massive generational sin. Don't believe me? Just open up your Bible to almost any section of scripture and you'll see it. Just since we began preaching this, this uh, journey through the scriptures, how many times have we seen where fathers have failed to teach their sons? And it resulted not only in the destruction of them, but it usually resulted in the destruction of a large portion of the nation of Israel, either physically or spiritually, or some both. Fathers, mothers, grandparents, children, siblings, we all have work to do here. As some of you know, in the last year or so, uh, I've lost some of my ability to remember and recall things. But as I studied through the Psalms this, these last several weeks, I was forced to realize how important it is to remember what the Lord has done for us. Not just for us personally, but what he's done in history since the foundation of the world. How he is the creator and sustainer of all things. How he has kept his promises to us. 
how he has always kept his covenant, even though we, like so many of us before us, have forgotten. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 5, chapter 6 through 11 says this. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from, by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is our message to the next generation. And this gospel does not produce its effects in the lives of people only once. The gospel is not a once and done thing. The gospel is for God's people every single day. Remember this message. Repent and turn your hearts to the Lord. You must command your attention to studying and remembering the scriptures. You must intentionally apply and live out the scriptures faithfully in your family, in all of your spheres of influence. You must diligently teach the next generation the scriptures, and in every opportunity teach them to apply the scriptures to every area of their lives so that they too can teach the unborn generation. In conclusion, I would like to offer a few results you can expect, you, that you can expect if if you choose to be faithful and obedient to these exhortations today from Psalm 78. The first is this, that the next generation will set their hope in God instead of themselves or in other people. The next is that they will not forget the works of God and that even when they are pressured by this world and their own flesh to do so, they will be faithful. That they will keep his commandments when put to the test that they will continue to remember the ways the previous generations have failed and so as not to commit the same sins. That they will have steadfast heart through trials and difficulty. That they will have a spirit that is faithful to God as they battle sin and their flesh every day. And finally, by the power of the spirit and the mercy of God, and their submission to God's commands, they will continue the legacy of faithfulness. You can choose to begin today. Don't hide God's word from the next generation. Let's pray.